Hello, and welcome to the second series of Multiscale Musings. We are a network of computational science PhD students based at the University of Warwick who are producing a podcast all about theory and computation in the physical sciences. I'm your host, Idil, and joining me today is Tadashi Matsumoto, a PhD student from the Warwick Maths Department. Today we will be discussing all things related to machine learning and material property prediction with our guest, Binqing Cheng, who is an early career research fellow from the University of Cambridge. Hello, Binqing, and thank you for joining us today. Could you perhaps introduce yourself to our listeners and tell us a little bit about yourself and maybe sort of summarize some of your current research interests? Thanks for having me here. It's my great pleasure. So uh, my background is in computational chemistry. So it's a subject of using computer simulations to predict like what's happening uh, in the universe mostly how the materials and molecules would behave. My background training was in, uh, was in mechanical engineering. I did my undergrad in Hong Kong, and then I went to uh, Switzerland for my PhD and enjoyed the glorious chocolates over there. And after that, I moved to Cambridge to become a junior research fellow, and uh, I am more, more or less continue on this route. No, oh, definitely sounds like an interesting journey, spanning a, com- a couple of continents as well. <laughs> yeah. So um, now for some more sort of lighthearted questions. Um, we'd like to start the podcast by asking you what some of your hobbies and interests are. Um, essentially, what do you do when you're not doing science? All right. So sports wise, I enjoy uh, doing yoga. And then besides that, I am a very avid cook. Uh, I enjoy cooking so much. Uh, more, I, I'm more uh, towards the baking side. Um, I, th- 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 there was a time I was so sucked into baking that I made almost uh, about like one cake per week. Wow. So this isn't like a a lockdown hobby. You've always liked baking. I always like baking. And then I do a little bit investment on the side. Ah, okay. Like the stock market investments. Sounds interesting, definitely. Okay, okay. Well, uh, I hope you didn't buy any GameStop stock. No, no. I'm actually... um, I'm actually more on the short side. Ah, okay. okay. Well, now back to a bit of science. Like, do you have any scientific heroes? And like, if so, who are they? And what about them inspired you to do science? Actually, my scientific heroes are not uh, scientists. I know, like, many people are very into uh, Dick Feynman or for direct, those are the popular scientific heroes. Uh, I'm not that attached to the, like, my scientific, they're, they're not scientists, they're usually comedians. Um, for example, uh, George Carlin or Doc Stanhope. And I find a lot of similarity between uh, comic and science, because in both of these subjects, you need to have, um, you are pursuing the reality and both of these require a lot of critical thinking 
So I would really say it was George Carlin who inspired me to sort of uh, uh, try to pursue a little bit of what's really happening and think independently about problems. Well, I was going to ask you about your favorite scientific act, but maybe perhaps I should ask you about your favorite quote about George. Is there any favorite quote or joke that you have? Right. Uh, so I do have a favorite quote, quote from a scientist from Paul Dirac. In fact, uh, for for many of my for many of my scientific presentations, I I use this direct quote as my first slide. So uh, he was saying that uh, the fundamental equations for describing everything, right, namely the Schrodinger's equation, right, the quantum mechanical equations, is known. But the problem is that if we are going to use that equation to solve scientific problems, the computational cost is too high. And, and therefore, uh, the, the, the way to go forward is to develop cheap methods so that we can perform these calculations and predict what's happening. And that inspired me a lot in my research. Yeah, definitely very interesting. We'll hopefully later on we'll ask you some questions about machine learning because that that's definitely how that links in. Um, but now sticking with sort of trying to get to know you a little bit more, um, I'd like to ask. So with us being in the midst of a global pandemic, and you know, in fact, most of us are almost one year into working from home. Um, how did the last year affect your schedule and the shape of your science? So sort of with regards to conferences, meetings, and uh, perhaps even sort of research collaborations? Mm. I think in general, uh, there's less fun. I, I obviously have stopped going to conferences, at least in person. And uh, uh, I also lose the, I, I also have lost the opportunity to just chat with my collaborators or colleagues uh, in a corridor or during lunch. So that's a shame. Um, I and 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 I definitely felt like I'm less creative during the this past year because I think a lot of good ideas uh, came about and I just chat with people and talk about preliminary ideas. Yeah, definitely. You sort of you don't really realize how much you learn from your colleagues by just sort of turning around on your chair and asking questions and maybe having some coffee in in the corridor and so on but definitely. definitely yeah so for some of our young listeners could you perhaps summarize what the life of an early research or of an early career researcher is like for those that don't like don't quite know what a postdoc position at a university is could you briefly summarize your day-to-day -day activities right I think the most important thing to know is that you can do everything. There's there's really like no restrictions, right? I can start. Of course, I, I can start working at 9 a.m. in the morning, but I can also start working at 1 p.m. in the afternoon, right? So I, I really feel like my day is completely my own 
and I can partition it however I want. And, and I do think that is the biggest perk of academia uh, compared to the industry. Now, that has been said, this is also the downside, right? Because I don't have a nine to five job. And it often happens that I'm still working outside the nine to five window. Now, as for earlier career researcher, like I also want to clarify. So there are different types of sort of, uh, let's say, postdocing. So um, it could be like someone is supported uh, by a, a, a PI by in, inside by a principal investigator uh, in a research group, and those sort of uh, funding usually come from a specific project. And then that person will be more obliged to work on a specific project. And then there are also individual fellowships that is uh, awarded to you as an individual. So uh, when I first started after my PhD, I have a junior research fellowship, which gave me a lot of freedom. So I don't think my experience it's probably not that representative of a po general postdoc experience. And then since last year, uh, I undertook an, a different fellowship, uh, which then come with a little bit of a sort of expectation to do uh, teaching and supervision. So that is also a little bit different. So I would definitely say, so first of all, there are a diversity of uh, different positions that one can take and they come with different expectations and then secondly even for the same position I think in general people have quite a little bit of freedom okay that's interesting but like I'm very curious like what made you choose ac more academia after your PhD as opposed to working in industry was it the nine to five thing that or the flexibility that motivated you to stay with academia? Were there any particular reasons in your case, for example? I think the flexibility was a big plus. And another thing is that I feel like in academia, whatever I do, this is like my project. And I have the freedom to choose which project that I want to do. Uh, and, and of course, like there are many types of industrial jobs and I have friends who are in, in industry and they are research scientists and they are having a great time. There's also a lot of, uh, let's say, deviations within the industrial jobs. But I will say on average, uh, we get a little bit more freedom on choosing what to do. You mentioned that uh with your fellowship, you have to do some teaching and perhaps some supervisions. Uh, what courses have you taught so far in your career as a postdoc? So uh, back then, before the pandemic, I taught machine learning in chemistry 101. So the idea there is that uh, we didn't want to teach the machine learning sort of the traditional way how computer scientists uh, learn about them, but more sort of a, a street fighting, more uh, practical style okay. and some tools that people, especially uh, chemists, can use uh, for their research. Okay, okay. And what would you say 
what concept was perhaps the hardest thing to teach your students and what was the easiest thing to teach to your students? Mm. I think the hardest thing is probably, uh, uh, I think the difference between machine learning or data science compared with the more traditional scientific methods that we are used to is uh, uh, there's, you, you don't, uh, there's no uh, theory, there's no, um, there's no theory that uh, uh, you used to describe your data, but you just look at your data first and then find a pattern. So I really think it's this way of thinking that underlines uh, data science that takes a little bit time for people to get used to. Yeah, definitely. Within sort of science, we're kind of expected to formulate a hypothesis and then sort of move forward from that. Whereas with machine learning, it feel kind of feels like it's maybe the, the the opposite. You work backwards. You hope right. for the data to tell you something about, you know, the reality of the science. Right. And just and finally on teaching, uh, what do you like about teaching, and what do you dislike about teaching? Right. What I like about teaching is the fact that it forced me to understand better the subject. Because there are many times I think I on I have understood something, but I cannot explain it in a very lucid manner, which actually means that I don't understand it that well. So I think to be able to explain something clearly really forced me to have a deeper understanding of the subject that I'm teaching. Now, for the things that that, that I, I don't like as much, uh, I, I, I think it's always uh, the, the fact that it is a little bit of a time sink, right? You can easily end up spending a lot of time preparing your lecture materials, and there's no end point. Okay, thank you. No, definitely. I can see that happening. Um, as PhD students, we do a bit of on the side teaching, which is not nearly as much as what you do, but definitely marking is a massive time sink, for instance. Not something you really think about when you go into teaching, but there you go. OK, so now sort of moving on to more general computational science questions. Um, how would you explain the field of computational science and what running simulations means to a non-theorist or an undergraduate student who's just starting in the field. Right. So, uh, so the holy grail of simulations that we want to predict something using uh, computers, so that we don't have to do actual experiments to see what would happen. And this is a very uh, broad field and I can give a few examples. So there's the simulation of the atmosphere, the simulation of the weather, right? That aims to predict how the atmosphere will evolve and what would be the weather uh, tomorrow, right? That's one type of simulation. Like we do simulation of material properties. So we are saying that we want to understand how a particular material would behave under a certain condition, right? And we want to do that even if without a sort of looking at this piece of material in wet labs. 
and even before this particular material is invented. No, definitely, yeah. Uh, Tadashi and I are both PhD students within the Hetzis department at Warwick and all of our work is theoretical and computational, so we <laughs> completely relate to that. Um, but I guess we want to ask a quick question in terms of just trying to draw an undergraduate audience to this podcast. So you mentioned that you work as an early, early, you know, what the work of an early career researcher entails. And, you know, that's but something we're very keen to learn about is why computational science? You know, why theory? What is it about uh, computational science that drew you away from the wet lab environment? Mm. So first of all, I have to admit that uh, I'm very bad uh, in doing wet labs. <laughs> I think I'm more on, I'm quite very much on the clumsy side. And then I think uh, it's also a little bit of personality thing. I think for wet lab experiments, especially uh, in biology, right, the incubation time is very, very long. It takes like a year or more just to get the cells going just to set things up. Now, uh, I I think I'm not patient enough to do that line of work. And that's why I choose a uh, theory. And then there's also this um, divide. Uh, I, I think like, let, let's admit that not all parts of the scientific in, uh, research are interesting. Like, some are interesting and other parts are very tedious. Now, other people may disagree and also I really do not have any experience in wet labs. Uh, my hunch is that the interesting to tedious ratio in, in theory, uh, in theoretical type of work, is a little bit higher than the wet lab. But that's just my personal feeling. No, definitely. I mean, I can relate. I come from a biology background, so the incubation time that you speak of, <laughs> it's, it's definitely there. I can see that. OK, so well, now in terms of sort of coding languages, we'd like to touch on that. Um, we know that in your field, you're often using large simulation codes typically developed over decades, you know, with multiple contributors on these very large scale codes. Um, and they usually sort of code up the laws of physics and chemistry and what have you. But what we like to know is which programming languages do you most often use in your research and what do you think are the advantages of them? Definitely Python. So uh, I, I don't know if like uh, many of you guys remember the days coding C++ and Fortran. Like when, when Python came it was just so refreshing. It, it really feels like Writing a piece of code is like me and you like talking. It's like it feels like speaking a natural language. No, definitely. I mean, we're still being trained today and I'm sure many people are in Fortran. So we can see the difference between Python and Fortran for sure. Yeah, OK, so OK, well, one thing I'd like to ask you is it's probably more of a big picture question. Um, where do you see and how do you see your field evolving over the next few years and decades? This is actually a, a very hard question. I definitely, because, so back to the direct quote, right? So what hasn't changed in the probably past 
50 years is the uh, is the sort of the uh, drive to develop faster methods so that we can study more and more systems on a longer and longer uh, time scale right so that's the thing that I, I think would keep now the only question is what kind of new methods and what kind of techniques will people bring to our field to reach this goal I definitely think machine learning will play a very important role. Uh, there might be other theoretical developments uh, that, 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 that may also help, like quantum computing, although it's probably a little bit further on the horizon. Now, we'll move on to a bit more field-specific questions so our listeners can understand what you do more specifically. Now, you've obviously published some papers by now, and uh, what, pub what, what publications are you most proud of and why? Right, so, the, the, so there's a series of work that we are reasonably uh, happy about, and this, uh, these are all on predicting material properties. So, uh, to, uh, and, what we did differently compared with other people is that we use a machine learning model as a surrogate so that we are able to simulate systems at a time scale uh, and also size that other people uh, like uh, like the older sort of generation could not. Now what we so uh, to give some examples in one of the work uh, we were predicting just from quantum mechanics would be the behavior of water at different temperature and pressures. Like why does uh, ice float on liquid water? Why is liquid water uh, densest at four degrees Celsius? And what is the melting temperature of uh, ice and water at different pressures and and beyond that there are also many different uh, ice polymorphs so the ones that we, we are familiar with is the snowflakes in nature so that's the hexagonal ice but indeed there are many many ice phases so for example there are 18 com experimentally confirmed ice phases so we did a study to see which phase is stable at what condition uh, and, uh, and uh, as another example, we did some work on high pressure hydrogen because the high pressure hydrogen is the dominant uh, component in the center of giant planets and many exoplanets such as uh, Jupiter. Uh, and obviously it's very hard to probe what's going on in the center of Jupiter, but using the tool of simulations, then we can answer a few questions like how did uh, hydrogen become uh, a conductor? How does it become a metal? Yeah, this is definitely very interesting. This is really big science like this. This is the realm of the theorists. But um, it's interesting that you mentioned about water because on the face of it, I think if you, you know, the public or someone who hasn't got a background in science, they would say, well, why is water still, still a very hot topic? Why is it still 
big science. We must know, you know, given that our bodies are 95% water, we must know everything there is to know about water. But, you know, it's still, you know, something that we're doing lots of research in, uh, including yourself. But that's the thing that surprised me uh, after I started doing research, right? Because a lot of things that seems very commonsensical are uh, actually beyond uh, our sort of uh, state of the art. It's really at the frontier. Uh, so besides water, I can give another example of how utterly mundane phenomenon is not explained at all. Like, what about like friction? Because right? we all have learned like friction uh, even in mid school and, and we know the friction is a constant times the, 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 the gravity of the objects placed on the surface. Right. But microscopically speaking, like what really happens there? Is it uh, uh, is it because like because we think of the surface as made of atoms? Right, and there are many different uh, types of surfaces, and they are uh, atomically very rough, and they may have some absorption of oxygen or water on the surface. So why is it that we have this very familiar rule of uh, how large is the friction force? Right. So these phenomena are completely unexplained. Maybe you could give us why, for example, modeling this sort of systems is uh, is challenging. Like, if you could explain why modeling this is challenging. Right. I think the challenge uh, comes from the fact that the the reality is not clean. The reality is often very dirty, and uh, the 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 word dirty means that like many of the like seemingly pure objects that we see are not actually pure. They are not uh, made of a, a single component. There are many types of molecules like coming together. And it's this very uh, complexity of things that makes modeling very, very challenging because we have to sort of uh, first distill like what's really happening in this very complicated process. What is the dominating mechanism that we should uh, focus our eye on while safely omit the rest of uh, more peripheral things? And what is the most important element? What is the most important component in the system that we want to study? Because we cannot look at everything. Yeah, definitely. Right. So as a final question for the podcast, we'd like to ask, are there any systems that you find interesting but don't quite have the time to explore? Um, now, Im imagine that you have like infinite resources and time. What would it be that you'd like, you know, you'd love to research and, in and look more into? There are many such, uh, there they, they are many, many uh, such systems. Although I would actually say uh, the th so there's always a hierarchy of uh, priority. Right? Although I would I would say I, I try my best to study the things I'm most interested in and the things are further down the line. I give it a little bit lower priority 
and 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 I do this with the mind that uh, I I try my best to avoid the uh, sunk cost, right? Because oftentimes I, we are doing A, but what we really want to do is B, yeah. but we think like since we have already spent so much time and effort doing A, I want to finish it. But if we look at it at a fresh lens, and we might realize actually the best thing to do is just drop A or put A a lower priority and start to work on the things that is important. Of course, this is so much easier said than done, but uh, at least uh, I make an effort to do that. No, definitely. I mean, I've definitely seen lots of uh, examples of that in the department. That's interesting that you say that. OK, so, well, I think we're just about out of time, but, you know, we loved having you definitely learned lots about computational science and even a little bit about, you know, the life of an early career fellow. So I hope you guys enjoyed it as well. Uh, thank you to Dashi for co-hosting this episode with me and uh, till next time, hopefully. Bye bye. Bye bye. And that brings us to the end of this episode with Bing Ching. We hope you enjoyed listening. Next time, we will be speaking with Professor Kieran Burke from the University of California, Irvine, about the exciting world of density functional theory. Until next time, goodbye! <laughs>